Welcome to another episode of the Collective Evolution Podcast. Today I'm going to be having a conversation with Irene Lyon. She is a nervous system health and neuroplasticity expert and creates highly insightful content on YouTube, Instagram, and her website, which I invite you to check out after the interview. It seems in Irene's content there's always this aha moment that comes whenever she's talking about health or well-being or even just this experience we call being human. She has been a great teacher to me over the last few years and has become a good friend. I hope you enjoy our conversation together. Well, thanks so much for coming back on the show, Irene. How are you doing today? Hello, Joe. I'm good. Um, in a new location, as you can see, testing mm-hmm. out this new office. So hoping that all, all things go smoothly with the internet. We'll see. That's it. That's all. New office, new, new set of topics we'll discuss here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think a... As, as sort of basic as this may sound, again, a good place to, to start again here. And I, I preface this question by saying there's a lot of, as this discussion of trauma or nervous system health or, you know, with the word somatic and somatic experiencing, all these different things mm-hmm. are coming to some extent in, uh, in the public consciousness. And um, there's a lot of confusion about the word trauma. Yeah. and what it means and all the different ways to interpret it and um and it's created you know quite a cultural hoopla on social media and i thought uh, a good place to start is to kind of why don't we break that down a little bit what exactly in your understanding is trauma so if i go with my lineage of the teachers that i've learned from and with um And this is becoming actually a bit more common knowledge, but we would say that trauma is not in the event. Trauma is in the nervous system. It's in the physiology. It's in the body. um, It's in the tissues. Um, It is what we would call nervous system dysregulation, which is a fancy word for the system is living in some form of survival stress. 24 7 and when we have what we would call trauma to the body or we are traumatized or we have what we would what most people know of as post-traumatic stress disorder is essentially stored trauma or complex ptsd complex just means it isn't just affecting one part it's affecting the entire system digestion immune connection thinking processes all that um this dysregulation impacts the whole system. So if we like had a graph on the table or a Venn diagram or something to depict it, it would be trauma is equal to or means nervous system dysregulation, stored survival stress. And then I would draw like another circle around it with like lines that would then say, and this can impact this, 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 and then this because it impacts and ripples out. And then, of course, we could say, well, then what causes this trauma? What causes nervous system dysregulation? And then, of course, that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's one, one key word popped up there. And, and maybe you could, uh, maybe I'll challenge you to do this in a storytelling type manner. Oh, okay. You said stored survival stress is part of yes. the picture. Um, yeah. And so so maybe so that people who are like, I don't know, am I traumatized or have I ever identified as that? Maybe, you know, there's an example you might be able to provide that sort of tells a story that we may be able to relate to of how survival stress can become stored um, in our body. So 
The first thing I'll say before I get into maybe an analogy and then some story is there is sometimes a defense. There's sometimes even a survival stress that we experience when one says um, it's possible you have trauma or your, your system dis is dysregulated. And this is what we've talked about you and I before, you know, just before we started recording is there can be this little bit of a, I don't have trauma. I wasn't abused. I wasn't in a war because we've really attached uh, PTSD to being in war. Cause when that term PTSD came out, it was a result of, um, really it was, if I memory serves, it was more so Vietnam war, things like shell shock and that were talked about after the first world war, which is essentially stored survival stress, the freeze response and, and all these things. So, um, stored survival stress I'm just going to name it from a biological point of view is when fight, flight, and freeze. These are our basic autonomic nervous system responses. People know them. Like this is the other thing. Everybody has an autonomic nervous system that we want to work when there is a real threat. You hear a loud bang, you might jump and orient to be like, what was that? you hear something that's really intense or you see something that's really intense, you might black out because what you're seeing is too much. Um, you hear bad news, something you don't like, your heart rate might raise because of the stress of hearing that. I mean, we can give you a million examples and your listeners to describe fight, flight, freeze is a normal physiological reaction action to something in the environment that is stressful, threatening. So I'll just put that, I'll park that. The, the issue or the trouble, I don't know the proper word, but the thing with humans is when we have a outside influence that is threatening, that impacts us, and there's a few threads here. So how we respond depends on how healthy our nervous system is to begin with. So I'm going to park that because that's another conversation. But let's just say we don't have the healthiest nervous system. So if we have a, th a threat come to us, I'm going to talk in terms of being an adult right now, not a child or an infant. If we don't note that that is happening, if we are not able to sense how highly stressful that is, we will store it in our physiology. Or stressful thing might happen and you're like, oh, I'm stressed out right now. I can hear, I can feel my heart rate shifting. I can sense these things. Oh, it's nothing. I'll just keep going, right? Or I'll keep doing something. Or I, I feel the need to cry I can't right now, I'm going to hold it in. Or I feel the need to just like rage my fists because something just occurred. Nope, just keep it all in. Don't express. So if you think about that in terms of like, if you think of a bucket, you know, this, this stuff is coming inside of the body and the bucket is just filling and filling and filling. And it's like this classic, it gets to the point where it's full and it can't contain anymore. And so stored survival stress in that very loose example is this bucket of ours, which is our body, our system, our tissues, our, mo our 
I don't use the word mind, our thinking processes, our cognition, it's filling up with so much survival stress that it's either so overwhelming that we can't function or it's so overwhelming that we shut it down and we push through, but we are carrying this load of survival stress. And we've heard people use the, com the common um, saying, you know, oh, if you got a monkey on your back, you know, or take that big backpack off, you're carrying all that stress, or you're wearing stress in your shoulders, you know, your shoulders are high up. Like we actually have quite a few terms, butterflies in my tummy, that's stress, yeah. tightness in my chest, my throat is dry, I I've got a frog in my throat. I mean, we could sit here and think of all these sayings that actually we have in the, the English language at least that actually depicts stored survival stress. And so, so again, I'll park that and I'm gonna use another analogy. If you've ever been on a plane, which most people have, when you take a water bottle that's plastic, you know, on that plane and, and you keep it closed the whole time, you will watch it expand. And then as you descend back to sea level or wherever it it compresses and then when you land and you open it to take a drink of water it's like it's been pressurized right you got to release so when you're on an airplane it isn't just that water bottle that's being pressurized what do you feel in your ears right a lot of people will have problems with their gut after the plane gas is different like that kind of thing um if you have a pen in your bag and it's not sealed properly, it could explode. You know, remember paper mate, liquid paper? I used to like actually carry that stuff with me, you know, back in the day. And I remember a liquid paper thing exploding in my backpack on a plane. So I say that because when you're on a plane, it's not just your water bottle that's being pressurized and it's not just your ears, it's, it's everything in that plane, right? We know this. And so when we have an outside stress coming at us or we have a memory, it doesn't have to be an actual threat, right? We can have a memory of something stressful. Um, we can make ourselves stressed by thinking about something. This is what psychosomatic would mean. And it's not just impacting, you know, if you bump your elbow on a on a door or whatever you yeah you feel the pain here but your whole system goes on some form of alert so survival stress impacts not just the area of injury or the emotion you might feel it's the whole system and then the path after that is what does a person do do they know how to process this are they actively conscious of it are they so self-regulated that it actually dissolves on its own or for the most part, which I've seen in my many years of doing this work, we have very clever strategies as humans to avoid and um, really kind of deke out these stresses that come at us. And we either know darn well they're there or we are completely oblivious to them because we've literally created, um, it's like we're on a, on a castle and there's a moat and there's dragons and alligators and there's a you know there's a stone another stone wall we've created all these barriers to not feel the threat coming because we've had to create these barriers and if you are in that castle at the top you know completely shut off you won't feel 
little things that come. You won't realize that your your internal water bottle is being pressurized when there is a world event, a stressful event, or even an injury. A lot of people will get injuries and they won't even know they're injured. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've worked with women who haven't known that they were pregnant until mm-hmm. they've delivered. This I hear this from my colleagues. For a woman to not know that, you have to be so in deep protection and shut down from your body to not know. So that's an extreme example, and I get shivers just thinking about it, but that shows how clever and we could say crafty the human system is at keeping us safe from threat. So that's a very long-winded way of trying to explain what stored survival stress is at a base level. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, I think one of the interesting takeaways there is our sort of ability, perhaps brought on by our culture to some extent, to, you know, cope in a way or to almost convince ourselves that, you know, this stuff hasn't happened to us or that this mm-hmm. is normal. Um, when we're talking about this idea of, let's say, that, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic and all this yep. anger arises and we just like we let's say we push it all down um we think well i I got over it right but potentially that anger actually just got stuck and i think that's what yeah what what i'm hearing is is you know this when we don't express something big that arises um we can push it down and it's not like it's gone it's it's that it it stays in the tissues and and it potentially stays in our organs and so on and so forth um, and that's a tricky thing because it becomes easy to say, well, you know, I got over it, right? It, it didn't yeah. really affect me. Yeah. Um, and so would you say like in that type of experience, and that's just like one example, there's probably yep. many, but you know, this is getting stuck in our tissues and this is getting stuck in our organs. And, and can you expand on that idea? Yeah. So now it's a good time to maybe explain the whole self-regulation versus not regulated piece because someone might get cut off in traffic and they're a little pissed off and they might just be like, ah, you know, jerk, whatever. And, and then they're, they really are fine. Right. Just like, um, someone might get into an accident and I use this analogy a lot that isn't that big. And, um, they, they really are okay afterwards versus someone who gets into the exact same, let's say, car accident that's minor. You know, nobody was hurt. Nothing was really that bad, but there was just a little bit of a bump. And that person, I often say, person A walks away and they're really fine. And person B walks away and they have complex PTSD next the next year. And these are real stories like that I know where, where people... And I'll say this is where in our world of insurance, the insurance agencies don't know what to do because on paper this wasn't that bad but why is this person now why do they have um you know an autoimmune condition why do they have chronic pain why do they have debilitating anxiety why can't they sleep and so then this comes back to the survival stress story which is they've been storing survival stress in their system probably their entire lives maybe even while they were in utero in mom's womb and maybe even inter transgenerationally in that family system we know this and if we you know add a little spice to this universal trauma past life trauma what happened in other parallel universes to this person's soul 
Um, I've done enough to see and experience personally and with others, all of these potentials are there to keep survival stress soared. So let's just say you have someone who their system is person B, you know, the littlest thing puts them off. Chances are, like I said, they did not have the best upbringing. Now, someone might say, well, what does that mean? People assume that is horrific abuse, no food, war, you know, mom or dad's being beaten. Like, that's true. This happens, you know. Yeah. And then there's what we would call more affluent households that look good on the outside, but there's a lot of emotional disconnection. There's lack of a t what we would call attunement. It's the leaving the baby to cry itself to sleep. It's the, your child hurting them and saying, you're not hurt, you're fine. It's having conditions around love. If you don't get these grades, you're not going to get to do this. Your sister will, but you don't because you've been a bad boy, right? All these weird things that we've created more so in the Western cultures to punish, reprimand, teach, condition uh, little humans to be good little soldiers, so to speak, good little, you know, robots. Um, so let's just say there's some version of that, right, that occurred. Um, as we age, we won't be able to be as resilient from from outside sources, outside survival stress. And I'm totally gapping on what your initial question was because I wanted to bring in that, that piece of if we don't have good, safe, nurturing, connected environments growing up, we won't grow what is called self-regulation of the nervous system via co-regulation. And I would say, Joe, that the bulk of our epidemic, pandemic, whatever you want to call it, in West, Western, I'm very, very um, deliberate by saying Western, I don't know what the proper term is these days, but more affluent, civilized societies, the bulk, I think, of what's occurring is this lack of attunement, this lack of connection, and it's it, it really does impact a human's ability to be resilient and regulated right later in life. Were they in a war-torn country where bombs were dropping off? You know, no. Um, but we can also talk about how I've met people, my mother being one of them, who were brought up in that kind of war zone um, with slavery and gunfire all around them. And they're the most resilient people I know because they had that nurture from the, the baby stage that is less no known or is less known because we've bleached out that intuitive quality from mother to baby. Um, so I'm kind of going in a little circle there. But what was the initial question? Yeah, it was just to discuss how the the actual trauma, what we call trauma, it gets stuck in the tissue. So there's stored survival stress. Yeah. So, you know, we don't have um, like a device or a microscope that can like go to the body and be like, this is exactly how it happens, right? Um, but what we do know through research and anecdotal evidence and works of say Gabor Mate, you know, his first book when the body says no, in my opinion, is still his best book, um, where it really looks at when we've had emotional repression, 
um, people pleasing, trauma, all these things. Um, the body, the survival stress ends up in the organs because there isn't repair. So if we think of something like the gut, we know that the gut is like our, really, we call it the first brain. When you're born, your gut is your first brain. It tells you what's right, what's wrong. It, it's a huge regulator and um, brain. It's a sixth sense. And it still is. You know, if a, if a kid is stressed and doesn't like their teacher, they typically don't say, I don't like Mrs. Whatever. They say, I have a tummy ache. I don't want to go to school. I was that kid, right? Yeah. yeah. And grade one, hated my grade one teacher, right? And, and it showed. I was in the nurse's office every day with stomach pains. So to answer that question, where does survival stress go? Um, it can go to these areas that are very sensitive to the environment. And our gut is one of them. But the interesting thing is, let's just say I never had a good teacher after that. Thankfully, grade two was much better and grade three was much better. But let's say I have stressful uh, school, stress at home, all right? My system is just going to be in fight, flight. And if I can't fight and flight my way out of this stressful home life, I'm going to freeze. When you have this dysregulation, fight, flight, freeze, the housekeeping and the repair and the recovery of our tissues and this is not just the organs but our blood vessels our fascia our hormones our immune system capacities all of it just kind of breaks down and so it's not that we go into the stomach lining and find like fight flight embedded in the cells but what we see is that it's like it's like a car that's been unbalanced with its tires and you know I can't speak car mechanic very well but you know over time something wears out more because the system isn't smooth and it's okay for a while um and if you feel your car you can sense something's not right when I turn this way some people will ignore those signs and other people will be like, I got to get this fixed because if I don't, this is going to be more expensive in six months, right? It's like wearing out brakes. You got to keep them fixed or else you'll have a big bill. It's similar with the system. So the survival stress shows up in the breakdown of tissues, the lack of energy because we're not replenishing our energy stores. Um, it shows up in our inability to think clearly, have good cognition, and if we go further, the ability to be creative and have that, that human brain quality that our brains have to innovate and create. Um, we're less likely to connect or want to connect, or we are overly clingy because there's a fear. Um, and, you know, really one of the bigger ones is the immune system and the hormone system, the circulatory system. Yeah. Because, again, if we're slightly off, all these systems that I've just been naming, they are governed by the autonomic nervous system. But the autonomic nervous system is also governing the fight-flight. So if there's a fire in the house... The system, you know, like we got to put that fire out. It's an emergency. We're not gonna, we're not gonna worry about dusting the antiques on the windowsill because it's not important. 
right? We're not gonna do the general everyday upkeep of a home. We have to take care of the fire. So that's a way of saying survival stress shows up. It's individual, but there's also patterns that we see. Um, gut, immune system, circulatory system, brain system are some of the, the key things. If we go a little deeper, joints get stiff, get inflamed. Um, from the classic adverse childhood experiences study um, and the research they did, you know, they had osteoarthritis uh, thrown into that because what happens when you don't have good upkeep? You don't get good fluid in the synovial joints. You don't get repair of the cartilage and, and the tissue and the ligaments. And so joints start to wear down. Someone who's also in survival stress will either be, they'll be fixed in a posture. They'll either be hypervigilant or they'll be collapsed. And so the, even the spinal column and the joints don't have the fluidity to move in all the different positions it's meant to move in. So um, that would be a first pass of how we find stored survival stress in the body. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I look at my dad, for example, he mm. had double hip replacement. Um, I think Ouch. he had his first one. I want to say he was in his early 40s when he had the first one. Wow. Um, and then maybe early. A little later. Yeah. And he was dealing with pain since his, um, I want to say probably since his late 20s. And um, yeah. you know, he always warned me when I was young because, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I was a big time sports guy. And, yeah. and I, I gave my 100%, whether it was in practice or in a game. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, my coaches, including him, would always argue, you know, don't, Joe, don't go hard right? Um, in practice. And I'm like, well, practice is why I'm able to do it in the game, right? Um, but <clears throat> part of his, his response to me was, your body will break down just like mine. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I, it's funny, he always told me that. And I always thought to myself, yeah, but what about all the professional athletes playing you know, 300 days of the year, and, and they're not doing hip replacements in their 40s. And, and it, it, it brought, brings up this question that's relating mm. to what you're talking about. And, you know, when, when, for the listeners, when you explore the nervous system, you realize there's a portion responsible for restoration and repair yeah. um, that, like Irene was saying, isn't prioritized when yeah. you're stuck in a more survival portion uh, yes. of your nervous system. And my thought was, well, you know, because I don't know why my dad had to have hip replacements and the doctor never really offered an explanation because I don't think they really know. They probably didn't realize it, what was going on. Yeah, essentially there's there's like a, um, a, a gel-like tissue in between mm -hmm. the, the joints that, that wears away. Why does it wear yeah. away? You know, that's fascinating, right? Um, and so maybe it's this, maybe this is part of it. And, and we don't know the answer, but what I find fascinating about this is there's a universality in terms of how humans function when we look at the nervous system, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean there's a universality into how the symptoms appear. Exactly. And that's a really, really important piece because in the Western culture, we tend to want this linear, if I do this, I, this is mm -hmm. gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And that goes away when you look at this work to some extent. It does. Um, I mean, there's exceptions to that case. But, you know, you go swim in raw sewage, you're probably all going to get sick no matter how regulated you are. Um, that's just, that's an extreme example. <laughs> but, um, you know, if we look at this idea of someone who needs their hip, hips replaced in their 40s and who had pain in their 20s, um, you know, my hunch, if I generalize, is 
um, wear and tear, not having proper movement practices that, that are functional. You know, most people are very fixed in their pelvis and they actually don't know how to roll over it and all the ways that you can. I mean, this is what my Feldenkrais teaching really taught me in my late 20s. So there's that, but then, you know, emotions. People, you know, I didn't talk about emotions. I don't tend to talk about them as much because when we have regulation in our system, the emotions start to actually flow in a very natural way. But people know them. So, you know, if you're trapping a lot of anger and a lot of rage inside, there, there's a bearing down, there's a pressure in the system. You know, I liken it to if you have an angry wild animal and you cage it, that thing's going to, you know, go, it's going to go crazy until the point that it can't, and then it's going to collapse. And this is why when we see wild, especially predators in zoos, you know, they don't, they don't look well. Their, their, their coat doesn't look well. They're, they're kind of flaccid. They're listless. It's devastating, right? To, to see these animals trapped. Um, and it's because they're not allowing their full emotional primal expression out and if we think of humans you know if we think about someone that's a a stereotype of your father which is the, I'm going to make a guess have probably had trauma that didn't get resolved and stored a lot of that stuff inside and and all these things and there's no shame in that that's just how so many fathers are and you know it's like he was there that that animal in a cage and they were told, you know, you, you don't do this, you don't do that. But when you keep that, let's say, anger or sadness, like I've met so many people that are, you know, not so, I'd say men and women equally, they, they're like, yeah, I, I, I don't know when I last cried, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it doesn't mean that you need to be crying every day, but something sad happens, you know, and it hits you in the heart you're going to feel tears, you're going to feel grief, you're going to feel helpless because you can't help someone who's say in pain or whatever. But if we have that armoring, back to that idea of the moat in the castle and the stone walls, if you have armoring around these sensations, because there's sensations that lead to emotions, you are going to create pressure and hardening of the tissues say around that heart joint or around the hip area or around, this is why um, at least when I teach my work, we work with the joints, we work with the diaphragms to slowly open them up so that there isn't this hard armoring around it. So if I use one other example, my, exa I, my personal example, um, I've had uh, like s seven surgeries on my left knee. I've had one major one on my right one from sport orthopedic injuries and um, well over 15 years ago when my current doctor saw my x-rays of my left knee she was like you shouldn't even be able to walk let alone stand and at that point I was still skiing steep skiing shoots I was still running I was hiking I was paragliding like so the question is was I actually in pain and I was masking it, my senses, because I, I really think I would have felt something um, because of my training in Feldenkrais, 
I had such efficient movement through my body that I wasn't putting all the weight on my bummed knee. And so there was, I, there was force going through me, through my spine. I was using my joints properly. I had literally retaught myself how to move when I got into my Feldenkrais training. And so unlike other clients or patients of this doctor who had had surgeries, they didn't take the time to retrain their body how to move effortlessly and efficiently. Do I have arthritis? Yes. Can I feel, you know, now it's 15 plus years later, there's crepitus in my knee. I can't ski the same way I can, but I can do a full squat. I can go uphill. I can run downstairs. Um, I'm not debilitated. But if you feel the crunchiness of my leg, you would be shocked at how it sounds because there's very little cartilage in there. And so that is because of intense upkeep and awareness of my movement patterns of my body. If, if there's a twinge, I don't keep pushing, but a lot of people will, won't even feel these twinges because they don't have the awareness, the sensory perception to sense it. So your dad saying, you're just, you know, to doom you, you will have this happen because it happened to me. Maybe if you hadn't have done any of the self-work that you do, and it's just, it's just not, you know, we don't have to have a life sentence. Oh, mom had this, dad had this, therefore I have to get this. You know, we know through epigenetics that we can shift the way our genes express and people reverse disease all the time through proper, I hate the word, but lifestyle choices, you know, like they shift their lifestyle and the body recovers as opposed to staying in that stored survival stress the whole time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can always just cut the bottom parts off of the genes to express them as shorts afterwards, but <laughs> you can, uh, we can use that as a small little uh, break Definitely. to allow that, that first portion to sink in. Cause I kind of want to switch gears a little bit here. Please. Um, so let's, I kind of want to go back a little bit to some of the childhood stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Cause we were talking about how, you know, we might culturally, reward our kids or we might say hey this has to happen beforehand and you know there's an element of conditioning mm -hmm. that or teaching it's almost like i think of in the wild right there's a there's a certain teaching of how to be in the wild that a, a parent has to give to their cub yep and you know in our modern industrialized <clears throat> world that sometimes can look different <laughs> and there's almost this question of like are we preparing kids for the world to sort of survive or are we preparing, preparing kids for the world to like be successful? Like what is, you know what I mean? It's a more <laughs> complex conversation. Yeah. And I wonder when we talk about these forms of conditioning or ways of which we reward our children, like um, it can seem like it's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And yet in, in your previous um, discussion, you were kind of saying how that can lead to what we call trauma. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, that's a tough one because most of us were probably brought up in that kind of conditioning civilization. Um, really it's kind of, I call them in my work, societal decencies, like don't, don't burp, don't pass gas. You know, you say, excuse me when these things happen. Um, you know, you're made fun of if you fart when you're a kid or you make it a joke and, I mean, I always, th I mean, you have animals, um, you know, you go to a pasture with, with 
uh, cows, they're not feeling shame because they're just pooping, you know, on, on the grass, you know, they're just doing their thing. Right. And, um, so, you know, it's such a delicate one because what occurs is when you start to talk about these things, there really is this sense of, oh, that can't be that bad, Irene. Yeah. You know, I'm fine, you know, and I, and yes, you are fine. We you know we are okay. We, we have houses and heat and food in our refrigerators. We're doing okay. But there is this din or hue of suffocation to our natural expression that has been with us for so long that we actually don't know any different. We don't know any different. And so when you first start out this journey, one of the first things um, that is taught when I work with people online is this concept of following your impulse. And I've refined how I teach that. It, It used to be just follow your impulse. And now I'm much more specific, follow your biological impulse. So in other words, when you feel the need to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. Granted, of course, I mean, we're not cows in a pasture, but go to the toilet, you know, relieve the bladder, relieve the, 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 the intestine, the colon. If you need to sneeze and you're not working in a kitchen, why are you, you know, holding it in? And my husband, Seth, he worked in food service for like forever. And up until recently, if he sneezed, he had this, um, this reaction to hold it the way a lot of people do. And that's like tons of pressure that you're creating in your system. Um, burping at dinner tables, you know, that's again, seems really, really kind of remedial, but you know, you're bringing food into your system. It's churning. There's a little gas that might get released. That's healthy. Um, and so that's one first pass of how we've been taught to keep in our expressions through this biology piece. Um, if we think about babies, so this comes sort of touches into the, the early, early bringing, you know, the develop what we might call development or early trauma, you know, again, we liken it to being a baby being abused, neglected, you know, bad things being handled poorly. But, you know, if a baby is hungry and we're trying to get it on a certain schedule and we deny it food when it's hungry, that's not good, right? We call this, um, I forget what it's called, um, sleep training. That's another very, very big thing that they do, that people do with babies so that they're asleep when we're sleeping and, you know, or whatever, so that parents can go back to work. And I get it, right? A parent might need to go back to work. They probably both need to go back to work in most situations. Um, so maybe they're being sleep trained or maybe they're with a stranger. And maybe that stranger, that nanny, is actually okay. But each time there's a pass off, there's like, wait, where did mother go? You know? Um, and then the classic one is letting babies cry themselves to sleep, which I think most of us kind of got, you know, in many cases, and it wasn't seen as a bad thing, because people just didn't know any different. 
but the whole way of letting a baby being in a crib, sleeping alone in their own room, like a, a cub in the wild would never sleep isolated in a cage from its mother. They're all nestled together. Same if you have, you know, a domestic animal that has puppies or kittens, you're not taking those puppies or kittens away from its, like a person knows, it's funny, like we know darn well, you would never do that to a, to puppies, domestic yeah. puppies. So why are we doing that with babies? So that's, a, you know, a few passes of how the, the culture society in the West mm-hmm has messed with our sense of safety, our sense of being able to express our bodily functions, um, which sets the tone for how we self-regulate our processes in our body, our hunger cues, all these things. Um, Again, being raised by a mother um, who was brought up in the Philippines, oddly, you know, I got the Western stuff. I got the crib, you know, I got the jolly, the, the, the walker stupid thing that apparently I launched myself once down the stairs. It's like, how safe is that? (laughs) You know, um, tons of clothing that a baby doesn't need. So they can't even move their limbs being stuck in devices. So they can't explore their spine and learn how to roll all these things. Whereas when you go to the Philippines and you're there, A, you never see babies cry. Just doesn't happen. Um, And they're all sleeping with mother or with siblings. Yeah. And even the last time I was back in the barrio, you know, they gave the guests. So me, my husband, my parents, we had, we got the rooms and no word of Elijah. There were like 15 people sleeping in one room, including the children and the infants. And it's like, how is it so quiet in there? But they literally were all co-sleeping, co-regulating. So, so there's, there's this kind of, um, there's this trauma of Westernization and domestication that's really infused and become accepted as normal. Um, And even just the other day I saw, uh, I mean, it was a quote on Instagram, but someone was quoting research and they finally they did they just completed this two year study that concluded that verbal abuse is just as impactful as physical abuse to children. And I'm like, why do we need a study for that? But yeah. people need these studies to know that you shouldn't raise your voice. Doesn't mean you aren't stern in a way to teach right from wrong, but yelling is very different in a toxic way than stern, you know, like you said, mama bear teaching her cub right from wrong. Absolutely. So how's that for a start on that topic? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've, I've, I still sometimes experience flavors of the terror that I felt when I was young, yeah. being uh, uncontrollably yelled at. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm 36 years old and I'm like, wow, that, that energy signature is still there. It's in my body. deep. Yeah, you know, so it's pretty fascinating, and um, yeah, you know, as I was listening, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm hearing the collective objections to some extent that I've, I've seen so many times where it's just like, yeah, but like, you know, look at us all in the West. We have money, and we have this, and like the stuff that you were saying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have food in the refrigerator mm-hmm. and roofs over our head, and like, shouldn't we just be grateful for where we're at and not call these 
things, you know, traumas. And, and I, and I hear this and it, it relates a lot to the, um, let's call it the social media, um, mm. wars. Can I say on. something to what you just said? Hold that thought. Sure, yeah, go for like it. you're right. Be grateful. Yeah. Like I am at, oddly, um, I am grateful when water still comes out of our taps and when, you know, like certain things because I've experienced having to boil my water when I went and visited my mother's village to wash yourself, you know, mm -hmm. and having to pour water into a bucket to go pee. Like this was when I was much younger. They've, they've, you know, improved their home since then. But like, I think, yeah, let's be grateful for the, the, the civilization that we have and why is it that the West is so plagued with so many ailments? Doesn't mean yeah. that there aren't ailments in these other countries, but they are way less. Um, um, a wonderful book is called The Continuum Concept by Jean Leadloff. Mm -hmm. And she, there's a wonderful, I think like 20 minute clip that maybe we can share with people near, near this video. And she has passed, but she she um, is an American woman who went into tribes and studied just babies, <laughs> yeah. and and she, and she it confirms what I just said. You don't see babies crying in these in these these villages. They're soft. Babies are soft. No baby has colic. You hold a Western baby, and they're just they're stressed already when they yes. come out. And these babies in the Philippines, they're just, they're just like putty. They're just so, and, and, you know, and yes, they cry if they're hungry, but then you feed them. You don't play games with, no, you're not hungry yet. We're going to wait for another hour until everybody's eating. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I wanted to just add that in because she's someone who's researched this and written about it in her book, um, The Continuum Concept. And it really is a great book for showing um that different way and and she will also say and there's other people that have written about this i think poe bronson wrote this in nurture shock which is a more modern book and i think the first uh, uh chapter is why you shouldn't praise your child and if you do you've messed them up or something like that i'm paraphrasing yeah and a lot of people parents are like well, what's wrong with telling my kid good job? It's like, why do you have to say that? We've been so conditioned to praise and reward, yeah. right? And then it's like, well, aren't they going to feel like, it's like, no, they've accomplished something good. That's for them to experience and feel, not for you to tell them. Mm -hmm. You might ask them about the process of what they did to create that thing or get that good grade. And, um, and Jean Leadloff also says that in this talk, she talks about the, the damage of praising and rewarding children. So I'll add one more thing. I hope you didn't forget your thought. The other thing is around food. How many kids were bribed with food? Hmm. If, if you, you do well, well, we'll go to Dairy Queen and get you a treat. Mm -hmm. If you eat all your vegetables, you'll get dessert. And I just heard it happen with a friend and her seven-year-old when we were in, in Europe just literally three weeks ago. This yeah. friend is on the same page as us. She gets it. Her daughter was finished. It was a huge plate of schnitzel. 
you know, that little seven-year-old stomach isn't going to fit all that chicken schnitzel in her belly. And the waitress in, in, I could understand it because they were speaking French was like, um, oh, you know, you better eat all that because I've got some, some ice cream for you back there. And my friend, you could see she got her mama bear look. We don't do that. Yeah. And, and, and her daughter knew that they didn't do that. She wasn't phased by this stupid waitress, you know, yeah. who's doing the old school ways. And, 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 you know, the kid got some ice cream, but not because she finished her schnitzel. Yeah. Yeah. And so some people might think, I mean, that's such a petty example, but she is listening to her stomach and why, and we wonder why we have so many people who, who struggle with food. Yeah. It starts that young. Yeah. Well, it, it was funny cause I had, um, uh, nieces there, uh, four, uh, 15 and 16 or yeah, 15 and 16. I had them over in the summer and, um, there was like discussion of, of having like dessert afterwards and you know it was kind of like well i i finished my you know la -di -da -da good food part, right yeah and yeah I do that now and then and i i saw that and i kind of i kind of chuckled but then i i i think the next night i i caught myself going well you know what if everybody eats salad then we'll have right but i was i was like half joking like doing it in a joking yeah. tone i couldn't yeah. even get through the statement without good. feeling like a lemon because i started to feel like <laughs> I started to feel like I'm like, they were to some extent looking at me like, oh, I, I guess we do have to finish. And I'm like, no, you're going to. No, finish. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it is fascinating. And, and um, it's, just, it's, it's interesting because, you know, this, the, these little forms of conditioning and stuff do lead back yeah. to sort of this form of, of expression and, and ways in yeah. which we learn. The question really is the ways in which we learn how to exist in society, has it actually been um, expansive or has it been, um, you know, maybe tightening of, of, of who we are and feeling uncomfortable. And like you, you pointed out chronic illnesses and how prominent, I mean, for, mm -hmm. for the West to be apparently the epitome of the world, why is it yeah. that we have such the a most massive season? Yeah. Yeah. And like you can argue, you know, some of these other countries, people are dying of basic diseases. Well, yeah, they don't have sanitation and they don't have clean water yeah. and food. And that's a little different. But yes. when we're looking at these chronic illnesses, it's like we've traded this industrialization for just a life of pain and chronic illness. Yes. And, and, you know, again, I'm not trying to be uh, hyperbolic here, but but it is really it's it's everywhere. I mean, like, yeah. take a close look, right? It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. And, um, and I think just for the viewers, it's like, I think what, what, what's being brought up here in this idea of childhood and, and these sorts of things is that there's a, there's potentially a cost, right. Mm -hmm. And to the ways in which we're always numbing our expression, mm -hmm. um, numbing our, our biological mm -hmm. impulses, um, moving away from our nature, mm -hmm. um, you know, conditioning ourselves into being accepted in society and all these sorts of things. And, um, you know, that, that cost, is potentially illness and it's potentially trauma. And so, you know, the question becomes is, I think what you're saying is that there are these small, minor, minor insults that can cause a feeling when you're yes. young of yes. overwhelm, yes. right? You don't get X and that's a very overwhelming experience. Your parents don't like your reaction. You're meant to go put it in the corner or you're, you're, you're left to be put in the corner to calm yeah. down. Yeah. Who helps that child through that overwhelm? that's that's what i mean no one exactly yeah 
Nobody yeah. did. I mean, yeah, you just brought up the classic timeout um, mm -hmm. concept. Um, I haven't done many videos on that. Gabor Mate has. And, you know, thank God that wasn't around when I was young. Um, but I've seen that play out in households that I've been in, you know, with friends and I'm not going to correct them in the moment. Um, it's not really my place when I'm not there as a therapist to them. And, but I'll watch, you know, the little two year old sitting on the steps cause they've just done something that the parent deemed not right. And they will be crying and crying on that step. And at that age, you don't know how to self soothe. You know, you will go into shutdown, you will button it up, because if you don't, you will be um, disconnected from the family system even longer. Yeah. Right. And so the first thing is like, well, why is that outburst happening in the first place? Yeah. And the thing is, is that there'll be some people they will be like, oh, well, it's hard. Children are hard. It's like, actually, they're not. Yes, they're, yes, they're not regulated. Yes, they need a lot of help. They need to learn. But I've been enough around enough kids to see them shift instantly when you attune to them. They just settle down. You know, um, I, I talk about a story. Um, you may remember my Rome story where I confronted this little boy in the Colosseum. Did you ever hear this story? It's vaguely ringing a bell. Then. So... This was years ago in like 2017, Seth and I were doing a, a tour of the, the Colosseum and the Palatine Hill and the old, the old village in Rome. And it was a long day, you know, you started and you walked and walked and walked. And then the end of the day was the Colosseum, which is like another 90 minute tour. And there was a family on the same tour with us with a little kid that was five years old. His name was Levi. And, um, Poor little Levi, he didn't want to be, nor would I at age five, <laughs> in the hot sun, touring the Roman ruins. And um, at the beginning, I watched while we were waiting, I'm like, oh goodness, this is going to be quite the tour, him hit his grandfather and, tr and run away. And of course, he ran away on the street. And so his grandfather picked him up and hit him back. And I'm like, well, this isn't going to go very well. And so he hit him, uh, he subdued him enough for the kid to be quiet for a while. And then it just kept happening throughout the day. And so the very end of the tour, we're waiting like in this corral to go into the Colosseum. And if you've ever been there, there's all this stone, these small stones, just sea of stones. And so we're literally standing on these stones. And he started picking up these stones and throwing them at his family members his mom was there, his dad, grandparent, it looked like an auntie or something. I'm like, Oh, F like, this is not going to go well. And of course they started to say, if you don't stop that, you're going to get a spanking. I'm like, I can't watch this anymore. <laughs> so, so I, and I was exhausted. And so I sat down on the ground, Joe. And as soon as he saw this adult sit, he was like, what's she doing? And I started picking up the rocks and just looking at them. And he came straight over to me and I said, Hey, and they were English. They were American. I'm like, you want to play with me? Like, let's, let's get some rocks. And so I'm like, let's build something. 
So we're building, and I actually have a picture of it. We built this like coliseum. It was kind of cute, like this this round dome. He's looking at me and he's smiling. And then I'm like, what do you want to do with that? And you know what he did? He smashed it. He got his aggression and he just ripped it apart. I'm like, yeah. And I wasn't like being super loud, but I'm like, awesome. You know, and he's just smiling. The kid just needed to play. Yeah. You know, he doesn't care about the history of the Roman Empire. And, and, so, and so then he calmed down and then mother came over and she said, wow, you're so good with kids. You must be a teacher. And it just, it's like, that's the epitome of how disconnected even his own parent was to what this little five-year-old cub needed was to just play. He didn't need to be reprimanded. And it's like, he was looking to play. I played with him. It brought him down. And then we went on the tour. And the interesting thing is he knew I was with Seth and I was like, okay, I don't want to have to take care of him for the whole thing. And at one point he goes, Hey, Mr. Mr. He like pulled on Seth's pant. He's like, where's your girlfriend? Like he was looking for me. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, that poor thing. And then towards the end, he was screaming again. They were hitting him. And I'm like, yeah. Okay. Good yeah, luck, kid. You know, good luck. Yeah. And it's, and it's tough because I mean, there's generations who view that as, you know, that's how you get, that's how a kid is. And you know, that's what they know. And, and, you know, yeah you were describing the story. I mean, you said it, right. It was just like, it's really about attuning to and listening to yeah. the needs of, of, yeah. you know, that kid and where his nervous system is at. And it's yeah. not only being able to listen to your own nervous system per se, but also the, the nervous system of your, of your cub. And, um, totally. I think attuning to the nervous system of, of yourself and other people, I think is one of the, it, it, it's almost become like a fascinating skill to some extent to, mm -hmm. to hold because it, literally gives you so much more i don't want to say control from the standpoint of like the necessity to control yeah but the ability to choose life yeah in a significantly yes. more expansive and free way um where you're not just like reactive um and yeah. you know all these sorts of things and i think this is what's what's fascinating about this work and um like imagine being brought up with that knowledge and being brought up with, you know, that, and it would, it would be a different world. I mean, it really, it would be a completely different world. Yeah. And, and what you said, right. When the system has more regulation on board, when it's moving towards more regulation and self-regulation, um, through this work, you're right. The, it doesn't mean you won't have survival reactions when it is appropriate, mm -hmm. but you are then working through life and navigating through life with a higher brain that's actually turned on because your higher brain cannot work when the survival physiology is on fire. Yeah. And that's the part that um, I think <laughs> all roads lead to Rome, as they say, like at this, at this point in time, that was my attempt at a joke um, at this point in time, like, Pardon? It's not as good as my gene joke. It's not. It's not. Um, it isn't. But, you know, I, I think this is why, Joe, everybody, not everybody, but a, a, thousands of people that I've heard stories from, they are amazed when they just do these little tweaks that allow a little more regulation, a little more capacity, a little more 
biological impulse to come out and they start to see the ripple effect to all the systems. And one could say it's not rocket science because it's not, but it also in some cases is when you haven't had that. And this comes back to that story of these conditioned ways that we've been built in the West. It's, it's harder. And I say this with full, you know, love it's, I have found it more difficult to work with someone who was brought up in this more affluent Western, um, stiff upper lip, be proper, get the good grades. It is tougher to work at the outset with that physiology than a physiology that knows darn well that they were abused physically, sexually, verbally. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean that both systems cannot heal because it's true. They can. I'm living proof of that. Um, and if you just need a little more give in, in allowing a little bit of grace in to say, oh, maybe that wasn't good. Mm -hmm. maybe you're yeah okay I can feel where that might be a problem I can't experience it yet because my armoring you know my my stone wall is so big around me that I don't know but can you at least your cognition and some of these examples of infants have you connect to the possibility that there's more there than you realize to uncover if yeah. that makes sense Absolutely. And, you know, one of the interesting, I'll share kind of a little story and get your comment on it. Um, yeah. One of the interesting ways in which this, you know, shows up and I think is a, a, you know, sort of a great sign of how we've become used to so many behaviors that are, that actually shed light on something. And, yeah. um, uh, you know, again, going back to our, our my nieces were over and mm. um, um, there was, there was some art time. Uh, yeah. happening with also some some crocheting and yeah um and i at the time was was sitting there with them and, and i was trying to just um just do a bit of basic work uh, to catch up on mm -hmm. a few things that i i had let go for about a week and um mm -hmm. uh that you know i had turned the tv off um yeah. because it was on we had just finished watching something right and, and, uh, and the response was like from from the crochet it was kind of like like oh. at first there was this like you know I need the TV on. And it's like, well, why do you need the TV on? Well, because I need something in the background. And yeah. I was like, well, that's interesting. We can't, you like, can't you just crochet? And it was like, no, I, I need to have something on in the background. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm like, I became really curious, right? Because mm -hmm. I thought this was going to be like, yeah, I mean, I get why it's nice to have something on in the background, because sometimes I will listen to a podcast when I cut grass, but sure, I don't need to listen no. to a podcast and I cut grass. I can yes. just go and cut the grass. And, and yep. I, sometimes I just love the silence. Yeah. Um, and anyway, so, so I said, well, why don't we try like five minutes and just see what happens, right? Five minutes of no TV. And Good for you. I, I, it was like, she was, you know, the reaction was like, and like oh, the, the actual wow. physical reaction was like, she started to get small. Yeah. And was like, and then, and then was like this. And like, oh, as wow. if like, she really didn't like, to have to be in that experience. And so I was like, yeah. well, you know, she's here kind of a, on a, on a vacation and I'm like, I don't, I'm not here to teach her lessons per se, but I thought maybe we could like venture into this. And I, so I was like trying to navigate the situation a little bit, but it was, you know, hmm. it was kind of like I said, well, at the end of the day, like, don't you want to explore what it's like to be in the silence and just see what that feels like? And she's like, but I don't understand. Cause there's nothing wrong with having the TV on in the background. I said, nope. 
you're technically right. There's mm -hmm. not going to be but but what is it like to be in the silence? What is uncomfortable about being in the silence? And mm -hmm. and and the sh the shutting down was happening, and so I decided to just kind of back it off and and yeah. and you know whatever. Um, but I thought that was an interesting thing. Yep. I'm curious your observation and comments on that. Well, this just came up yesterday, funnily enough. I said to the other person I was talking to on an interview, you know, there's some families that, or some people that when they wake up in the morning, they instantly put the television on. Yeah. And I, I remember when I was in my 20s, I had a friend, this is before I did any of this work, like I was just in university, and she's like, yeah, I have to have the TV on, it keeps me company. Mm-hmm. And that's not something I ever experienced um, needing in my in my early adulthood and 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 now. Um, so I'm like interesting. And so you know what that showing and the fact that you saw her start to shrink is that external. It's noise essentially, um, engagement if you want to call it that. It's a resource. Because what's inside is, one could say it's too difficult for them to just be in their body. And so they need an external resource. That's probably what it is. Um, and this comes back to how in our Western culture, we just don't have practices that cultivate this inner being, this subtle listening like the, the 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 closest we have, and I don't think this is the best thing. Would be you know you go to mass and you pray, but how many kids are actually intently really connecting to their heart and the universe and their intentions? They're probably just wishing they were somewhere else. Yeah. You know, like it's being a kid that was raised in Catholic mass, like. Yeah. I wasn't, I was probably picking my nose or picking off my nail polish or something, you know, I wasn't really listening to the things that were going on. So I think, you know, from a, not I think, but from a, from a biological point of view, she or they, they couldn't be with their action, which is interesting because they're crocheting, they're doing crafts. That is something, um, but, you know, one of my teachers has said, you know, there's some people who cannot be in their house without music on, or they can't drive without music on, or they always have to have music on. It's the same thing. Like mm -hmm. you said, there's nothing wrong with watching something, listening to a show or having music on, but it shows the inability for us to just be with ourselves and our actions. Um, so that's what I would say to that. Yeah. And, and, and then what I will, one thing I will say is, you know, you were smart, you were a smart uncle to just dip your toe in and then not try to fight that fight. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it will be too much for them and too confusing for them to understand yeah. that because they weren't brought up in it. Absolutely. It, it almost felt like, um, not that that, like, that there wouldn't be capacity there to eventually sort of understand, but it felt like um, I kind of felt it as like there was a mountain in front of me Yes. Um, that I needed to, to climb to get them yeah. to, to connect with what I was trying to say. And I said, you know what, now's not the time for this mountain, but yeah. you know, Hey, maybe this little thought will maybe bring up a thought, maybe not. And that's okay. Um, yeah. Cause 
it's also the kind of age where, at least from my observation, at, at that age, you're, you're, um, you're in an interesting place where yes. you've, you've already been conditioned, but yep. you're not yet fully saying, I'm taking my life into my hands. You're kind of, yeah. you're kind of in that position of, yeah. of moving along. And um, yeah. it didn't feel like it was going to be easy to... No, that's a, I would say that's a tricky age because at that point, a lot of things have been ingrained and wired in and that age is where you're starting to seek autonomy. And even if she's maybe interested in what it might be like, she's going to push back. Right. Because, you know, it's just the way you are and there's nothing wrong with that. And often, you know, people will ask, oh, gosh, I know that I did these things and my kids 14, 15, 13, what can I do to help them? And you can't do much except work on yourself and maybe have soft touches that shift, Mm -hmm. because if you shift it so drastically, it will be a shock to their system and they won't know what to do. Whereas if you have a two year old or a one year old or even a five year old, it's different. Um, and, and so there is an interesting, um, dance depending on the age of the kid or the teenager, what you can and cannot experiment with. Yeah. Right. It's the, I mean, on the invitation here at the end of the day is, it's really just asking, you know, all of these different things that may or may not have happened to us that mm-hmm. these little patterns that we've come to accept as normal can we get curious to explore like why do we do this mm-hmm. could, you know almost this is a big question is like could i be actually feeling better more free more expansive as a person yeah. and what really is stopping that is it just say behavioral patterns in my brain or is there actually something in my physiology you know if you look at the nervous system as the governor of almost mm-hmm. to some extent your entire experience mm-hmm. um you know maybe we need to get there and and you know so we've talked about a lot of different things from hey what is trauma sort mm-hmm. of am i even clear of the trauma i might have been exposed to in my childhood my development all these sorts of things and from what i've learned sometimes you you remember these things as you begin doing this work you're like holy yeah. crap and you uncover stuff but you know, for people that are curious, I know you have uh, of your most advanced program, mm-hmm. a new cohort coming up soon. Yep. And uh, and people might be interested in checking this out. What yep. what could they expect to learn from your upcoming uh, Smart Body, Smart Mind? So much. I mean, you've gone through the curriculum, so you know firsthand. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, if I give just a little bit of history, because I think it's important, um, I created this curriculum because when I was in private practice seeing many people over time I started repeating myself each day each client teaching the same thing over and over again because I found that to even do the one-on-one work there needed to be an educational theoretical understanding of why we were doing this And I know that because when I first did a somatic experiencing session with a practitioner years before I created this online stuff, I actually thought that the woman was a little crazy because she was getting me to orient. (laughs) And oddly, I now know that what she did with me, she actually shouldn't have done because I was in so much functional freeze that it it made me just pissed off. It actually mounted my stress response more. And I had no understanding for why she was getting me 
to orient, mm -hmm. right? So it was like this disconnect. Um, so I say that little story because sometimes when people do start this work, there's a little bit of a, this is too simple. Like how can this, how the heck is this going to cure my fibromyalgia or my um, autoimmune or my mental illness, right? But it, it, it's going back to the course. So I created it because people needed to be able to study on their own time, not just one hour a week, but little bits throughout the week, exactly the same way you would raise a baby. You're not going to raise a baby and a human by holding them and attuning to them once a week for one hour. Yeah. Right? That's good, but you have to do that a little bit more all the time. And so what Smart Body, Smart Mind really is, it's a huge deep dive into the theory of the autonomic nervous system, what we would call the new traumatology, all the all of the theory that, you know, would be in Peter Levine's books, even Gabor Mate's books, my trainings is in that curriculum. And then the practices, um, as you know, I call them neurosensory exercises. They, they dip into not just working with the vagus nerve and not just working with breath and not just working with orienting. Those are all in there and important, but how to really reconnect to the somatic physiology at a very deep level. Um, and then the addition that I think is different and why this, the system I've created is unique is I also bring in the Feldenkraisian aspects, which are reteaching your body how to explore movement and move from an internally driven state, which is exactly how babies are meant to learn how to walk and roll and push themselves up from the beginning, right? And so if we didn't get that good, connected, co-regulated, exploratory time with our caregiver, with the ground, with nature. Um, in essence, what smart, smart Body, Smart Mind is doing is it is reteaching, or for some of us, teaching for the first time how to feel our bodies, how to move our bodies, how to understand our survival stress, um, how to work with anger, how to process you know, disgust, toxic shame. Um, there's, there's so much in there. Um, and the one thing I'll add that a lot of people ask is, do I have to finish the course in 12 weeks? And I don't think I've met anyone, Joe, not even my own colleagues, because I've had senior colleagues go through Smart Body, Smart Mind who are way more trained than me, and they've gotten something out of it. Mm -hmm. And nobody has gotten through the whole curriculum in 12 weeks. And it's, designed that way so that you come back over and over again and you pick up from where you left off just like you can't force a baby to learn how to walk talk and read Shakespeare in 12 weeks yeah right and I can say I've even gone back to uh, labs that you know I had previously completed after doing yeah. later labs and later practices only to go oh yeah i'm hearing that slightly different this time of and, course. and i'm taking something new away from it and and yeah. you know the fact that there's lifetime access there um is really nice because i mean especially for myself personally who i, I love to kind of really just dive deep and yep. understand because you know i've always looked at this work as like a an operating manual for exploring your potential as a human being like it's mm -hmm. it's really fascinating stuff and mm -hmm. um i i know that you know, the other thing too is like, sometimes it will be like, well, do I really need to know? 
right. the education piece? Do I really, you know, I, if you just give me the practice, whether it's whether it's a breathing thing, whether it's a, a somatic thing, whether it's a movement thing, it, isn't the practice really where it's at? And nope, I, I can tell you <laughs> as a person going through it, like the education is really important. It's um, so important. And it doesn't mean you have to become educated to the point of I have a degree, you know, but it's, it gives you such a more, much more massive lens yeah. expanded state of consciousness on listening to yourself and what is going on. And it's like, would you want to know how to just turn on your blender? Or would you want to know how to like use it properly? Right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, fully with all the different little features. And, mm -hmm. you know, would you would you only want to know how to like, use the phone on your phone, like the, you know, the call function, or would you want yeah. to know how to use all of it? Is it all the other things. I know how to use it, right? A hundred percent. Well, it's kind of like, um, I'm glad you used some of those analogies. I used the analogy yesterday of a car, you know, to in this day and age to drive a car, you don't need to be a mechanic. Mm -hmm. However, to, you know, it'd be great to know some of those things, but you know, not all of us are going to do that. Um, but with our human body, um, cause yes, we have people that we could go to that can help us. But again, um, you know, I was a practitioner for over 25 years have been, and yes, you can do some work. You can go see a, a therapist, a, a great somatic practitioner, you know, heck you can work with one of my colleagues and teammates, but they will say, my, my colleagues will say over and over and over again, the people that have gone through smart body, smart mind, when I work with them, it's a, not that it's like easy because tough is, you know, there's stuff that comes up that's tough, but it is easier because A, you're not having to convince a person of why we're doing this weird sound or why, you know, we're just going to slow down and, and do this one thing. But they, because you got to understand the human, us, we have this higher brain, Right. We want to make sense of things. We want to understand and have meaning. And we're smart. Like there's a powerhouse in this skull of ours yeah. and there's an intuitive quality. And if we don't understand why it's been thrown off so deeply, it's difficult to do what might even be considered almost an esoteric practice with some of the things that, that I teach in SBSM. Because a lot of it is energetic, a lot of it is intentional, but it's the same reason when you hold a newborn baby and you're calming them through co-regulating, you don't say to the newborn baby, I need you to take a deep breath and hold it for four seconds and then let out to, to regulate your heart. You can't do that. Yeah. You need to attune to them. And so what a lot of us are struggling with and I've seen this in the world where people are just doing the exercises. They're doing them without understanding what they're doing them to. And that maybe some days you don't need that practice. You might just need to take a nap, you know, <laughs> or maybe you need this. And unless you understand the deeper levels, um, it, it is very hard to, as we say, become your own medicine so, um, yeah, I cannot speak enough to the importance of having the high level theory with the practices and many of my students and your peers, Joe, will say they have met psychologists whom are nowhere nearly as skilled in the theory as they are, um, after having gone through the SBSM materials. Mm -hmm. So that says a lot, you know, it's really going to teach a person how to be really trauma informed. Yeah. 
not just from a theoretical point of view, but from a somatic point of view. Yeah, and and you know, you were touching on what I what I think is is kind of the beauty of all of this is that synchrony of of the mind, of the body, and of mm-hmm. the spirit coming together in an in an emotional yes. regulation as well. Like all of the pieces being synchronized together is the expression of a human, as opposed mm-hmm. to purely logical or purely yeah. ungrounded in spirit, where it's just all. Yeah you know, spiritual bypassing, that yep. kind of stuff. There's, yep. This is about bringing it all together. And um, and to your point on the psychology, I mean, I look at the mm. Instagram wars that go on where you have these, you know, prominent psychologists just bashing the trauma yeah. space altogether. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and you can tell in their posts and their excerpts, they don't quite understand what is being talked about within no. the trauma field, within the, no. how, you know, the body keeps the score, as they say, yep. I love to make fun of that. Um, but it's interesting because they're responding to this whole situation with mockery. And yeah. you know, that makes me wonder, well, if you're resorting to mockery, what's going on there? Right. That's a defense. Um, yeah. You know, so I, it's, yeah, actually yeah. I'll speak to that quickly because I, I get it. Right. I, I, my first, um, study was exercise science. And then I got into Feldenkrais because everything I learned in exercise science couldn't help me recover from my injuries. So I had a choice point at that point. It's like I either be ignore the fact that I don't know how to work with myself and be a hypocrite, um, or I learn the stuff that actually helped me. And then I got into the Feldenkrais work and it was great for me and for a lot of people. Um, but then I came across this trauma thing. I'm like, oh man, I'm missing another piece. So I decided I better study this other stuff that Peter Levine is doing. And then that led me down where I'm at now. And I think what I'm, what happens in some of these circles in this, it's not just the psychology community. I've seen it in the spiritual community and the, the quote unquote shamanic community. And it's like, it's threatening because they don't have the ability to teach at this level, but it's like, you can learn, Yeah. you know, just like I, just like you, just like your peers have decided to learn. Um, so the mockery piece, it doesn't make sense to me because if that person was really interested in helping the human condition, they would be interested just like a good scientist, a good researcher is interested in what other academic institutions are doing. But, and this is a whole other podcast, right? We know what's occurred, you know, there's, there's this separation of pointing fingers. It's a question of, of trauma again, right? Is trauma blocking that exploration of curiosity, right? And that evolution. Yeah. Like all that's being asked is, have you considered this? You know, yeah. like, um, it's not saying, Hey, this is the only way it's, have you considered it? You know, yeah. Yeah. but, uh, yeah. but yeah, that's, that's a whole other discussion. Anyway, yeah. um, how can people dive a little more deeply into your work as well as, you know, check out smart Body, smart. Mind? Sure. Um, so you'll probably have a link to SBSM near here. So obviously that will take you to learn about the curriculum, what it is, um, the cost, all that stuff. And then me personally, um, just my name irenelyon.com. The site will bring you to everything you need, whether it's my credentials, my bio, my YouTube, my Instagram, blog, um, resources. Um, There's a lot there. And recently we've created some uh, guides that kind of distill some things. So look out for that on the site. 
um, because you know there's there's a lot there. We've we've been putting out videos for 13 years now, um, so there's a lot to look at. But what I have heard is when you go in with an open, interested, curious mind, the videos become binge worthy. Like it really. People go often go, wow, this is like they there's like this intuitive sense of this is what I've been looking for. Yeah. And it's not because I am special. It's just that it just the t it's the timing, Joe, right? We finally have this coalescing of information. We have the yeah. technology to disseminate it. And there it is. So I, go into those videos and, and learn. Yeah, I came from a, you know, uh, personal development, spiritual, metaphysical background, yeah. you know, for years and years and years and years. And when I heard this, it was like, uh, these are all the missing pieces that of questions that I had answered or that I didn't have answers to that I had explored. And these filled in the gap um, in a really meaningful way. So yeah, definitely That's recommend cool. people check it out. And uh, Irene, thank as you. always, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. You're welcome. It was always, always good to talk. Yeah. That's it. That's all. Thanks, Joe.